Oh yeah, Duncan Green here with your weekly roundup of From Poverty to Power posts. Um, I'm in a fairly strange state this week, post-election, um, not looking good at the moment in terms of uh, progressive politics in the UK. Um, but at the same time, we're all getting ready for Christmas and people are winding down and everybody's in the pubs and on the street. So I'm, I'm suffering severe emotional and cognitive dissonance uh, this week, but never mind. Um, the blog continues, so I'll catch up on the blog. Um, first up this week uh, was a plug for a good friend of mine, Harjun Chang, who I've known for about 20 years, um, who's gone from being a kind of geek economist in Cambridge to being a sort of global rock star. And uh, he's just published through the Institute for New Economic Thinking an amazing set of le- online free lectures called Economics for People. There's 12 lectures, each of them 25 to 30, 50 minutes. Uh, they're followed by a discussion between Harjun and uh, a bunch of his students. Uh, he covers such a range in equality, production, industrial policy, the role of the state. Uh, the only thing I could find to fault was that there isn't very much on, on gender, on the care economy, on feminist economics. Um, but you know, he can't know everything. Um, I urge you to read all his books. I mean, he writes absolutely beautifully. He has single-handedly redeemed economics for a large number of my students at the LSE. So my big question is, why is he not a professor? It's absolutely ridiculous. Here's this guy who's rehabilitating a severely damaged discipline in the eyes of the world, and that discipline can't make him a professor. Something very wrong there is going on in the economics discipline. Anyway, um, that's enough for me. Um, Second up this week uh, was about Myanmar. Um, I'm doing a bit of work on Myanmar over the next few months um, for a governance program. And I was very interested in a blog that uh, Ange Moray, Nicola Nixon and David Ney of the Asia Foundation sent me on um, some work they've been doing in Myanmar around tech for development. Normally, I'm very sceptical about ICT for development because it tends to be a bunch of geeks saying, oh, look, we've got this app which is going to solve hunger or, you know, solve gender-based violence or whatever. And this is not that. This this program uh, worked in three townships to support the government to respond on safety issues. So the first thing they did was work with local communities to identify the safety issues that they were most concerned about. And they identified road safety, personal safety, and crowd safety. I'm not quite sure what the crowd safety thing is, but anyway, those are the three things they they identified. And then they developed a very simple mapping tool which allowed people to upload their data onto a map of the township so you could see what was going on. And it was a real illustration of kind of seeing is believing. Once you could show officials that this is what's going on with road safety, this is what's going on with personal safety, things started to click. Um, And the interesting bit about the post for me was that they talked a lot about the unintended benefits. So one of the things that happened is that different branches of local authorities started to work together because they had this safe, you know, uh, digital representation that they could combine on. So the people in charge of street lighting could suddenly combine with the people in charge of road traffic and start seeing how the links were between bad street lighting and traffic accidents. Um, so it improved coordination between branches of the state. It also helped bring in people who are who are not formally registered as ha- as households. So that swathe of you know, half the population in some of the townships um, who are not on the government radar suddenly started to appear on the maps and therefore acquire a certain existence in the eyes of authorities. And the key issue that the that the authors bring out is that you know. 
this works when you subordinate the technology. You don't become drunk on the technology. You subordinate it to collective problem solving and participatory methods. So it's that classic thing of getting technology back into its boxes are a useful tool rather than putting it on a pedestal and saying it can solve everything. Wednesday, we decided to rattle a few cages. We reposted a really great piece called Are INGOs, International NGOs, Ready to Give Up Power? by Deborah Dwan of the Rights Collab organization. It was originally published on Open Democracy, really good blog. I urge you to sign up there. Um, and it was a, a sort of reflection by Deborah and a lot of interviews with southern CSO leaders, southern NGO leaders, um, coming out of a thing called the Pathways to Power Symposium a few weeks ago in London, organised by the Global Fund for Community Foundations. Sorry for all the long names. But the basic argument that Deborah made is that um, you know, the INGOs are finding it incredibly hard to give up power, um, either because they don't want to or because they can't. Um, and I think you know, her argument is that power follows money. So in a way, she was exploring how much agency, how much good intention is possible when the money is basically flowing from north to south and therefore power is held in the north. And that, for me, is something I've seen over and over again in the NGO sector. Good intentions versus the realities of power. Um, and and uh, she explores that with some great quotes and it really got people discussing in the comments. Um, excellent piece. Thursday, um, sometimes things come together. Uh, you, you have the same conversation in two or three different fora and that often prompts uh, a blog from me. This one was on um, informal social protection. So a group of my students at the LSE came along and said, um, we've been asked by Oxfam, I didn't know this, but we've been asked by Oxfam to look at informal social protection mechanisms in Somalia and the DRC, the Congo. Um, and what they mean by informal social protection is basically families and friends and neighbours looking out for each other. And their hypothesis is that this is incredibly important in places like um, uh, DRC and Somalia and in many other places. And yet uh, the aid sector hasn't really studied it, doesn't really understand it. They didn't come in with their cash transfers and their social protection schemes and their food, food parcels. And they aren't actually plugging into the existing ecosystem. So this reminded me of um, a book I read ages ago and was absolutely blown away by called Portfolios of the Poor, where people did, took the same approach on, mic on, on, on finance and credit. Instead of thinking we're going to come into these communities with our wacky, you know, great new funky microfinance schemes, they came, they said, okay, let's just watch. Let's just find out how people save and, 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 and borrow. So they did these things called financial diaries with 250 families in three countries over a whole year where they kept the same researchers went back every two weeks, built up trust with families and started to uncover this whole ecosystem of finance that nobody had known about, at least nobody had known about from the microfinance providers. Um, so in a way, we need something similar on social protection. And then just, a, just after the students had come to ask me about that, and I'd burbled on about portfolios of the poor, um, I opened The Economist and there was a whole piece in The Economist, beautifully written, about exactly this, about the networks that people use and rely on in, uh, play in, in many African countries, which reminded me of 
conversations with taxi drivers. I know this is a journalistic cliche, but I love talking to taxi drivers in London. And one of the things I ask them about is what is what is it like? Many of them are from Africa, different African countries. And I say, what's it like going home? And one of the striking things is the number of taxi drivers who said to me, I can't afford to go home. It's not the airfare. It's the number of presents that are expected of me. Um, one put it at about £5,000 per visit to go back to, to their home country and see all their relatives. And if you don't meet those expectations, it's massive shame up on you, on your family. So it's actually become a huge thing, this reliance on not just remittances, but returning diaspora. Um, and the question broke out in comments about, isn't this true everywhere? Everybody relies on family, everybody relies on friends. And I think, yes, but my impression, and again, I've got no evidence for this, my impression is that it is stronger and more pronounced relative to the state in many parts of Africa. So it'd be interesting to see what people think on that one. Um, then the final post of the week was we went back to Deborah Dwan's piece because there was so much commentary on Twitter, on internal Oxfam uh, 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 dashboards on uh, the blog itself that Maria Faciolince, who went to the um, original uh, uh, um, workshop, the Power Pathways to Power Symposium, Maria put together and uh, highlighted a few of the themes emerging in the um, in the comments. And I think the big theme for me is okay. So Deborah's presented very powerfully the problem. What are the ways to dig ourselves out of this? Uh, so that was one and I think there I'm very firmly convinced that until you stop the power of money until southern organizations southern CSOs start developing local sources of money they will always be at a, at a, in a weaker position relative to northern NGOs and northern donors but then the other one which I thought was very good was people saying well look hold on a minute power is everywhere power doesn't stop at north south Power, power is between the capital city and the grassroots organization. Power is between the well-connected NGO and the unconnected CSO, um, civil society organization. You know, So uh, the danger is if we just concentrate on the north-south distinction, we will, create, we will help foster a bunch of mini-me southern NGOs which have all the problems of northern NGOs but just happen to be located in the south. So I thought that was a really good conversation and, and hats off to Deborah for getting it started. So that's the end of me for me this week and for this decade. So I will be back in January. Um, I hope you'll have a fantastic break and I'll see you in the 2020s. Bye. <laughs>